Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast and Happy New Year to all of you. We're going to do things a little differently today because there's only one thing we want to talk about. We've brought on two of our writers to help us today. Audrey Fallberg and Andrew Egger were there at the march this week that turned violent, that sacked the Capitol. And so we want to also hear from them what they saw firsthand, their impressions of what was going on, how it could have been stopped. As always, I am joined by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French, who will have plenty of their own thoughts on what has happened this week. dive right in. The Dispatch published its first editorial this morning. Steve, can you talk to us a little bit about that process and what uh, we said as an organization? Yeah. Um, we, we've had a policy from the very beginning that we didn't want to do a lot of editorials. Um, we weren't going to do anything like a daily editorial. We thought we'd weigh in when sort of war- events warrant. And uh, we decided that the events of the Capitol... Uh, and looking back over what's happened in the past few weeks, certainly warranted a, a, an institutional uh, voice from us. So uh, we wrote an editorial, drafted an editorial. Um, uh, David did a lot of the heavy lifting. Jonah added a bunch. You had thoughts. It was a really a, a group project. And the main argument we made was that Donald Trump uh, has to be impeached, removed, and barred from holding office ever again. And you know, I think we can spend more time, um, perhaps later in the podcast, going through all the details of why that's the case. But I think if you look at what happened uh, yesterday at the Capitol, you look at the president's role in inciting those riots, you look at the fact that he was unapologetic uh, about what had happened. There's reporting in the New York Times and elsewhere that he was pleased by the violence and the disturbances that he saw. You look at the fact that he was cut out of the military chain of command when there were requests to use the Washington National Guard. Um, And you look at his ability to navigate the country through the next two weeks. And there are real questions about his ability to do that. Beyond that, um, we think it's important for purposes of civic hygiene, as the editorial uh, states, that there's a message sent here. You can't do the things that Donald Trump has done. You can't behave in the irresponsible way that Donald Trump has behaved and remain in office. Uh, He's taken the country through nine weeks of hell based on his fantasies about winning an election because he's a narcissist who can't stand losing. Uh, You know, it's forever a stain on the Republican Party that they've allowed him to do this for as long as they've allowed him to do this, but ultimately the the responsibility rests on Donald Trump and he shouldn't be president any longer. Jonah, what was your biggest takeaway as you uh, closed out the night last night? Well, um, and so just so people know, if I start speaking in tongues, um, I was in Hawaii and the, doing this all from five hours uh, behind on the time zone stuff. And it was all very, very, very weird. It was, but, Some of the things that were particularly weird were like, you can't use Wi-Fi over the Pacific. So like to see, to like land and like literally want to know whether or not like the Capitol is burning when the plane lands is a very strange feeling. 
Um, because right before takeoff in Hawaii, there it was just as dark as, as the sun was going down in, in DC, and everyone was worried about, you know, martial law, curfew, what's gonna happen, you know, with the protests this summer when it got dark is when it always got violent. And just to like be in uh you know, in a communications dark territory for a while was a very weird thing to do. Um I gotta say, you know, I'm just I I was it's so strange, and this is something that we talked briefly about, including the editorial, and I just I don't think it made sense to put in. But the escalation of how quickly yesterday went from bad to horrible, and how long ago the bad seems. You know, I'll, give, I'll just give you an example. Last night at LAX, I'm listening to you know David and mine's former colleagues at National Review, the editor's podcast. And they clearly recorded it very early in the morning on on what was yesterday, whatever, Wednesday. And so their entire conversation, at least the first half, I haven't finished it, but the first half hour is all about the Georgia election. And uh, Rich Lowry begins the podcast saying, well, the worst has happened. And then halfway into the conversation, Jim Garrity is saying, well, I think Trump's behavior in Georgia was clearly the worst thing he did for the Republican Party as president. I mean, I suppose something worse could happen later today. <laughs> um, and then I kind of wonder, you like, how do they feel when they finish recording the podcast and see Trump talking to the masses about, you know, uh, basically inciting a, a riot? And, um, and if you just think back about how terrible it was, what he was saying about Mike Pence in those remarks, and then how small and trivial his remarks about Mike Pence seem compared to people getting shot in the Capitol and dudes with Viking helmets taking over the, the Senate chamber. Um, and it's one of these boiling frog aspects on, on sort of speed about the tr whole Trump presidency. It's like compressed into one day, our ability to rationalize and say, well, this is really bad, but it can't get worse than this. And the thing he did 10 minutes ago wasn't that bad compared to this. And you make allowances for it. To see it all compressed with just two weeks left in his presidency was really a kind of a weird, surreal thing. And David, you were on record pretty early yesterday calling for the renewed impeachment of the president. Already today, uh, one congressman has called to invoke the 25th Amendment, which would involve a majority of the cabinet and the vice president attesting that the president can no longer discharge his duties in office. Where's that headed? Well, I mean, I think the impeachment, unless Congress comes back into session, unless I'm wrong, they have adjourned um, and adjourned for some time. So it looks like in spite of the fact that there has been a call from impeachment that has cascaded from across the political spectrum, that at, at present, it doesn't look like impeachment is a viable option. There are repeat, there are continu we're continually hearing reports that there are discussions of the 25th Amendment ongoing. But, you know, look, why would we say this? Why would we argue this? Why would I argue it so emphatically so early? And, it, you know, it really tracks with what we said in the in the editorial. I mean, I think there's three purposes here. There, there's pro it is. It's punitive because what Trump has done deserves punishment. It deserves punishment. He's he stoked and incited a insurrectionary an insurrectionary attack on the u.s capitol like the president of the united states did that that's stunning 
That's absolutely stunning. That right there, I don't care if he has six hours to go in his term, it merits some sort of punitive action. Then the second thing is it's protective for the next 14 days or 13 days because he still is clothed, clothed with the power and the authority of the office of the president of the United States. He still can do real harm. I mean, there, we're still in a fog of war about the reporting surrounding what occurred yesterday. But if the reporting is true that he sort of held back on deploying necessary forces to restore order on the Capitol or helped hinder that or delay that in any way, shape or form, that demonstrates he's a it's not just his his misdeeds are not just in the past. He's a current, clear and present danger. And then the third thing is, look, I mean, there's a lot of indications that he might run in 2024 and we should not have any illusions right now that the spell that he has cast over the GOP has was broken yesterday. There are people, yes, who have done things like flood my inbox with messages saying, okay, I, I get what you're saying now. I get what you're saying now. But that's just, those are anecdotes. And the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, and so what, there's no real indication that the spell that he is, holds over the GOP has been broken, or at least that he couldn't continue to commandeer a, a plurality of GOP primary voters now and in the future, but this man is a menace to the American Republic. So yes, I think this, if there's ever an event that merited impeachment, it is this event. And potentially the 25th Amendment. I mean, he, in his continual embrace of crazy conspiracy therapy theories, look, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not gonna try to diagnose the guy from a distance but he believes things constantly that are flat out provably and advances things that are constantly flat out provably not true and not true to an extent and not true to an scale that their falsehood is obvious to anyone who rationally looks at the issue. But I'll tell you what, guys, when I think about what happened yesterday and compare it with the what I see emerging online, as a narrative of this is what you get when you don't suppress the Black Lives Matter riots, or what did you expect, or people flooding uh, Twitter with images from the Kavanaugh protests. The hold here is deep. This was not some sort of tiny, tiny, tiny number of, of bad people sitting on top of a good movement. No, that's not what happened. These people are a symptom of a diseased movement. And the fact that not everybody who watches Tucker got out of their chair and stormed the Capitol does not move that mean that this movement isn't diseased. It is diseased and it has to be cut out. It ha there has to be a punitive action taken against what occurred yesterday and what might occur in a prophylactic against what might occur tomorrow or the next day or on January 20th and beyond. On Christmas Eve, I published an op-ed with the Washington Post reflecting back a little bit on my time working in the Trump administration. I was the director of public affairs at the Department of Justice during the Mueller investigation um, from, you know, roughly February 2017 uh, to November of 2018 when uh, I was removed from my position. And what I was writing about it, first of all, I tried to give the readers sort of a glimpse of what it was like 
to be there and be attacked by the White House daily to be, you know, they tried to fire me four times and and sort of the anecdotes to capture that. But the point of writing it was none of that. It And it wasn't to, you know, pull the curtain back about Donald Trump and like all of these, you know, things I had seen about him. Not that at all. It was rather to talk about the political appointees who went into this administration for the right reasons, who went in because, um, you know, they thought that Donald Trump was a pretty flawed guy, but that we want good people serving in government. We want a functional bureaucracy. These aren't like the deep state folks who are trying to thwart the president, but I called them the shallow state the ones who owed no loyalty to Donald Trump whatsoever um, and were fulfilling their duty to uphold the Constitution. And and how we're supposed to think about that. And on the one hand, without political appointees like that, these shallow staters, I'm going to call them, we don't have the Mueller investigation. We don't have... uh, uh, you know, the indictments of Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, Michael Cohen, Steve Bannon, two Republican congressmen. That doesn't happen with Attorney General Stephen Miller, for instance. Um, you know, the Bill Barr was the attorney general who came out and said there was no massive voter fraud. Uh, Bill Barr was the one who kept quiet the investigation into Hunter Biden. There were at least half a dozen senior political appointees in the Department of Justice who knew about that investigation. And nobody heard about it before the election. That's important. Those things mattered for four years. But the conclusion that I came to was that that wasn't nearly as important as what those people, including myself, did, which is that we lent credibility and kept a government sort of propped up that hid who Donald Trump was as president. Because as long as there was a Mueller investigation, as long as there were indictments of Republican congressmen who'd broken the law, people could think that it was simply rhetoric. It was simply his Twitter feed, but that actually his administration was getting good things done because Donald Trump was president. And because of that, at least in part, I felt like we obscured the Trump presidency and it led to 75 million people voting to reelect Donald Trump. And yesterday to me was exactly the consequence of that, where a whole bunch of folks have stood by to because they think they're doing important work. They're not doing what Donald Trump says. They're undermining what Donald Trump says to some extent. Um, and so anyway, my big takeaway from yesterday was that First of all, I think the Republican Party ended yesterday. I think that there have to be two parties moving forward because I don't understand how uh, someone like Mitt Romney or Ben Sass can continue to associate with the same party as Josh Hawley, for instance, or Ted Cruz. Um, And second of all, that the political appointees within the Trump administration who are there because they feel a sense of duty, they need to resign now. The end is here of uh, lending your name and your credibility to the Trump administration. Uh, Before we continue along those lines, though, I want to back up to how the day started. And we have Andrew and Audrey with us who were there when the protests sort of got going on the mall. Uh, And Andrew, I'm going to start with you. How did this start? Was this inevitable or simply foreseeable? 
so I, I think <laughs> I think those are that that's exactly the right way to ask the question is is with those two things as as the the polls because um when when you when we got down there um pretty early in the morning we we, we met on the mall um and and early on um uh there, there were sort of, there were similarities and there were differences between other uh, conservative marches like the like the March for Life that that I've covered on the mall before um it was you know there there was all the sort of like positive energy of just getting a whole bunch of people together who all think the same things, you know, people that just makes people sort of cheerful to do that. Um, but the, but the underlying sense of, of just anger and frustration, um, the, the potential energy of that, the, the static electricity to the air was there from the very beginning. Um, one, uh, one of the first guys that I talked to, um, down at, uh, down at the rally, um, was, a was a guy who had come up from, from Louisville. He was, he was a retired, um, uh, uh, small business owner and, and, and a farmer. And, uh, and he had been, he said, really involved in tea party politics. And he had come up for, for, um, for marches, you know, a decade ago. And he just said, I, I, I just asked him, you know, what's the difference between now and then in terms of like what the, what the feeling of the crowd is. And he was like, it's just angrier now. <laughs> I mean, that was just, that was, that was what he said. Um, and, and, and he, you know, seemed like a, like a perfectly pleasant person. And the lady he'd come up with seemed like a per- perfectly pleasant person when we were just ha- talking, you know, conversationally like that. But these people believed that an election had been brazenly stolen out from under them. Uh, and that's the kind of thing, uh, when you believe it, that makes even seemingly uh, pleasant and reasonable people individually uh, uh, willing to to take up, you know, pitchforks and, 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 um, you know, given the given the correct kind of push, which I think is what we saw happen, uh, willing to participate in something particularly crazy. So I don't, I don't want to, you know, jump, jump too far ahead. But but even from the get go, um, even among the sort of very ordinary rank and file protesters that, that we talked to there, there was really this this sense of of, uh, like I said, maybe static electricity, potential energy for something like this to happen. Audrey, was this a small group of people who then moved from where you were to the Capitol or was this everyone? So I actually arrived there around 9 a.m. As Andrew mentioned, we met up around that time. We decided to part ways uh, shortly after that. Andrew went over to the Capitol. I stayed in the President's Park near the Washington Monument to listen to the speakers. I actually left around 12 p.m. So I didn't see the storming of the Capitol. I came back from 3 to 5 p.m. because I figured that most of the interviews that I had gotten earlier in the day would have to be tossed out. So I didn't actually see that part. But I mean, I think Andrew really hit the nail on the head. I think none of this should have come as a surprise to any of us. The energy I saw yesterday, even in the morning, I mean, people were obviously very peaceful at the beginning, but the energy I saw was very similar to the energy at the Million MAGA March, where people were relatively peaceful, but people were so, so angry. I mean, you get there and you ask similar questions to everyone. You know, what what brings you out today? What are your thoughts in the November election? Everyone says, oh, the proof's out there. I, I can't go into detail. It'll take way, way too long. But, you know, the election was stolen from us. Oh, of course, the jo- the Georgia runoffs were, were robbed from us. And we're hoping Mike Pence does the right thing. <laughs> um, but I think that another thing that really struck me yesterday in the morning and throughout the day was the camaraderie I saw. I mean... Most people obviously weren't from 
the Northern Virginia or even the Maryland area. I spoke to people from Minnesota, South Carolina. People had trekked hundreds or even thousands of miles across the country to come to this rally. Um, but, you know, everyone there <laughs> became friends with everyone around them super quickly. You know, I at one point there was this woman handing out uh, mints to her fellow patriots around her. And one guy jokes, is that pure COVID? You know, I'll take one. And People were cheering, singing God Bless America. I heard a lot of Hang the Traitors chants. I think one of my favorite interviews from the morning section was when I... So Eric Trump spoke probably around 10 a.m. And it was actually his birthday yesterday. And this one guy screams, it's my birthday too. And I, I spoke to him after that. And he was just so honored to share a birthday with the president's son. But I mean, it was, it was truly a wild experience. I mean, I'm sure Andrew will have more to say about the, the actual storming of the Capitol. It was, it was really wild seeing the aftermath of that for me. It, yeah, if, if I can speak to the, the, that specific question, Sarah, because um, I think it, it's a really salient point. In a sense, there were two crowds, and in a sense, there was one crowd. Because from the get-go, it was clear that there, that there were, were two um, types of people there who had wildly different intentions um, going into the day. You had people, uh, a lot of people who I talked to who had just come out, um, just, they, I mean, they basically said, you know, Trump told us to be here and we want to show our support for Trump, so we're here. You know, we don't really know what's going on with all of this uh, uh, election fraud stuff. I, I actually had a couple people tell me, like, I mean, it, it, I mean, it was kind of, and it was sad, sad to talk to these people. I mean, they just sort of looked kind of despairing and said, we don't know. We, we don't know what's going on. There's no, there, these facts are not knowable. <laughs> we, we, we don't know whether it's true that the election was stolen or whether that's, uh, that's misinformation. There's so much misinformation out there and it's just not accessible to us, but we know that we love the president and he wanted us to be here. So we're here and we're going to support him. And there were people out, out there who were, who were like that. Um, and then there were people there at the same time, you know, even even from very early on, who were extremely plainly up to no good. Um, I, I mean, I, I talked to people who were were uh, were uh, describing themselves as militia recruiters who were handing out flyers saying, uh, "We're gonna, you know, we're 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 gonna get a militia together here, and uh, and and we're gonna be combatants." You know that that was the language that was used. Um, there was a group of Proud Boys who who I actually, as I was coming back from the Capitol, because like like Audrey said, uh, while the while the rally was going down at the other end of the mall, in, at the ellipse in front of the White House, that was where almost everybody was, and I had broken off um, to go see whether anybody was yet down at the Capitol. Um, and as I was coming back toward the rally that was happening on the ellipse, I there were. Uh, m m several militia groups walking the other way that I that I crossed paths with, sort of in this bizarre kind of faux um, drill uh, march sort of way, um, and I was like, okay, that's weird. And and that was that was even prior to when Trump spoke. And so uh, I, I think w a really important point about all of this is that those were the kind of people who were down at the Capitol first, um, and then what you saw when the Trump uh, when when Trump's speech was ending. Uh, and, and, you know, people were getting a little restless out in the cold and he was just sort of going into, you know, his same, uh, sort of cornucopia of grievances that, that he does in most of his rally speeches. People were sort of like, okay, we've heard this before. The crowd starts moving down at that point from the ellipse toward the Capitol. And, uh, and you get more and more and more people, a bigger and bigger crowd of people, uh, making that walk. And the people who are already down there, who are these militia people, um, 
and uh, and essentially people who came for the purpose, for the deliberate purpose of uh, starting this mayhem, they had already begun to push uh, through, you know, the police lines and things like that, which started off very small. But then as more and more people, you know, show up, they essentially started working like air, air traffic controllers, um, just telling, you know, just like yelling through megaphones, you know, like, come on up here. Like, this is where this is. Trump, Trump had told these people to march down, right? I mean, they're, 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 he's, he's like, go to the Capitol. We're, we're all going to the Capitol. But then there was, there was no other uh, direction given from anybody. I mean, they're getting down there and nobody is calling any shots except for these militia types who are, who are saying, you know, like, this is what we're doing, you know, patriots onto the lawn, patriots push forward. Um, they, they can't hold us back. You know, this is the people's house. They, they, they can't stop us. And then the, the wildest thing to watch was that what was seeing that this, this group, this, this crowd that had initially been these two distinct groups of people where if you talk to a, a, a proud boy in the morning and some random MAGA grandma in the morning, these are, these are people who are, who are exuding completely different energy, who are clearly there for completely different reasons, uh, who are going to give you completely different answers about what they're doing there today, seeing those two groups then, then merge because this is what's happening. This is what the Patriots are doing. Uh, this is what we're here to say and what we're here to do. Trump wants, I mean, tr- Trump's saying we're not going to stand for this and we're not going to stand for this. Uh, and and without that merging, without without uh, you know this increasing number of just kind of regular people who had regular MAGA people who had shown up uh, without a thought of of you know storming the Capitol building, but without their participation, this thing doesn't go forward because there just aren't the numbers there. Uh, without without this overwhelming uh, sort of sense of force. Um, that is that is that was led and provoked by these these you know militia types, but was not carried out solely by these militia types. Andrew, could the president have stopped them? At, at what point? I guess is the question. I mean, I think I think if uh, uh, he couldn't have riled them up in the first place, right? I mean, that's that's well, prevention might have done it. You know, I mean, the, so so he didn't he didn't. Uh, stop them i mean once he once they were there once the once the institutional like once the inertia was there once once there's people storming into the capitol i don't think you know trump showing up with a loudspeaker on the lawn necessarily changes anything at that point right but but there were i mean there are a lot of earlier off ramps i yeah, I, I, it's a hard question to answer without without saying at what point if if the, if the question is does this happen if trump uh doesn't invite people to come to the rally in the first place? I think, yeah, probably not. Does it, does it not happen if Trump is more restrained with his speech on the, on the lawn? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, he, 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 he did say in his speech, um, at one point, there was one thing he said where we're going to march down peacefully and patriotically. Um, and so, you know, you could make the argument that like, if people had listened to him there, you know, this, this wouldn't have happened. But at the same time, that's such a thin veneer of, of restraint on top of this, just a mountain of grievance and, 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 uh, and, and stoking of rage and, 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 and specifically saying, you know, we're not going to take this. We came here today because we're not going to take this, you know, and we're not going to, we're, we're just simply not going to allow it to happen. And well, there aren't really things you can do uh, to prevent it from happening other than the thing they tried. 
And he's also been telling his followers, he's pointed to violence as a solution to their problems repeatedly in the past. So it's no question that that he incited this and that they would listen to him and whatever, um, you know, I, I think I mean, if you want to use the, the, the MAGA formulation, um, they didn't need to take him literally. Uh, they needed to take him seriously. And seriously, what he was saying was pointing people to, to, to do the kinds of things that we ended up seeing unfold. And again, it's been reported by numerous outlets that the people who were with the president as the, the storming of the Capitol began said the president was pleased by this. This was the outcome he wanted. It's unbelievably irresponsible. Uh, I will set aside my rant because I'm very interested in, in going a little deeper uh, with you on, on one question in particular. First of all, if if people listening to this haven't taken the time to, to read the piece from Andrew and Audrey, I can't recommend it highly enough. I want to thank you both for going down there and putting yourselves in the middle of all of this and doing this fantastic reporting. But But one of the things that really struck me from your piece was the number of people that you interviewed who were perfectly willing to give you their names and tell you that they were trying to start a revolution um, and that they were happy with this and that the next time there would be more violence. Did that surprise you when you were asking people those questions? Absolutely not. (laughs) So that was Christopher Alberts. It was this man that I interviewed from Maryland um, it was right to the left of the Capitol. It was shortly after I had arrived at about 3 p.m. You know, I arrived and I w- could not believe my eyes. People were climbing the scaffolding. There were the entire terrace was chock full of people. There were tear gas canisters going off left and right. You know, MAGA rally attendees going, "It's okay, sweetie, you're going to be totally fine." I'm thinking to myself, "I'm not with you guys." <laughs> um, but you know. With that guy, for example, who said that he wanted to start a revolution, one thing that was just so striking to me was that he and so many other people who talked to me and were perfectly willing to give me their name and you know where they were traveling from, just had this unbelievable victim narrative, even though they were the ones who were trespassing and breaking into the Capitol. They genuinely were so confused as to why police officers were firing rubber bullets and why they were getting batoned in the leg or whatnot. I mean, it was just it was truly astonishing. This might be kind of a silly metaphor, but all I kept thinking of today in hindsight was that scene from the first uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie where the pirates are storming that island and there's just utter <laughs> chaos and there are bombs going off everywhere. Um, my my younger sister actually attended the rally with me. She didn't want me to go alone. And I, she didn't tell me this until this morning, but she was carrying pepper spray in her pocket And at one point it fell out and she was surrounded by like four huge MAGA rally attendees who were saying, you know, who are you? Who are you with? And eventually they left her alone when she kind of cowered and said, I'm looking for my sister. But I mean, it it was truly terrifying. (laughs) Well, thank you guys for your reporting. And again, encourage everyone to go read it. We appreciate you joining us today. Jonah, I want to talk to you a little bit more about where things go from here. Uh, Last night, Congress came back into session at 8 p.m. after they had re-secured the Capitol. And several senators peeled off from the objections, but seven did not. Josh Hawley continued, Ted Cruz continued, and... uh, 
many, many on the House side continued. Where does that leave us? Um, I think... Um, I think we now know that it is unavoidable that there is going to be, and I'm using this entirely figuratively, um, but that the Republican civil war has arrived. And um, as you were suggesting earlier, uh, it's very difficult for people who think that this was an absolute hate crime against the constitution, civic norms and democracy, and people who think it was freaking awesome very difficult for them to be in the same party, right? I mean, it's, it's one right. thing to like be for, even for repealing section 230 or not repealing section 230. It's another thing to think, wow, that was cool when the dudes with the Viking helmets smashed into the nation's capital and talked about launching a revolution. If you're on that side of an argument, it's very difficult to sort of like work compromise. And I think the fact that, I, I honestly think that Ted Cruz and Holly are misreading um, the their political futures on this one. They 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 clearly subscribe to the view that basically the primaries are going to remain the um, fiefdoms of Breitbart and and places like that, maybe the Federalists and that kind of thing, and that winning over significant slices of the a more unhinged sort of opinion side of Fox and the really unhinged places like OAN and, and Newsmax is the way to get a nomination. And, um, and my hunch is, is that if you had told them, if you could tell them, give them a crystal ball and say, here's how Georgia is going to play out because of the stupidity, right? Where you basic, where Trump basically gave Democrats a wedge issue to divide Republicans over. Um, and said, and then Trump is going to do this thing, which is going to get aroused calls for him to be impeached and removed again. Uh, my guess is they would have played this differently. I, you certainly wouldn't have seen the picture of Josh Hawley with his, uh, you know, raised f- Mussolini fist to the mob that 20 minutes later was breaking into the Capitol. Um, and but at the same time, I just think you know there are too many people who are sunk into their positions. There are too many people who, and this is something I want to write about. If I have to hear one more preening jackwad. Talk about how look they just want to have their their voices heard. Well, what the hell are you these people talking about? I mean, we have three television networks that are about listening to their voices. We have a president of the United States that's about listening to their voices. We have the pre-primary shuffling of the Republican Party all about listening to their voices. We have people going on and on and on about how we have to, you know, uh, contest the election and, and urinate from a great height on the Constitution because we have to listen to their voices. What voices aren't being freaking heard? And I, I have a feeling that there's going to be a, more of a backlash about this, particularly as Trump loses power over the Senate, particularly as bitterness over the Senate going Democratic um, sinks in. And uh, already we see, you know, look, Matt Gates. it's funny, he tweeted like a month ago, uh, this is Donald Trump's party. We're not going back to what it was before. Well, it's understandable that someone who is so invested in incandescent asininity would very much like it if the business model didn't change back to something that was more establishmentarianism, establishmentarian than it was 
um, under Trump. And we're going to see that divide. And they're going to be people who are going to be the sort of Yahoo crowd, you know, the I'm not a witch, I'm you crowd. Um, and the uh, and 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 with Trump losing his power, the establishment guys are going to and the, the the serious people like Sass and Romney are going to step up a bit and the wars are coming, you know, and I, I it's hard to predict how they're exactly going to play out, but I think they're coming. David, yesterday, there was something that struck me watching this all unfold on TV as these protesters turn to rioters, turn to insurrectionists, whatever term that you want to use. Our flag, the American flag, has 50 stars on it representing each of the states. It has the stripes representing the 13 colonies. The entire flag is a metaphor for union. It's all stitched right. together on the same flag. And yesterday, what I saw was a different flag that a lot of these people were carrying as they stormed and sacked the Capitol. They were carrying a flag that said Trump. Yeah. It was a single person that they were carrying the banner of, not the banner of union. And you think back to history, and you're my, you know, my buddy on all of this stuff. The Confederacy never took the Capitol. They never got close. No. Um, Moreover, the, the Confederacy also didn't want to federalize elections and abrogate states' rights. I mean, that was, there were some Confederate flags out there too, and I just couldn't believe yeah. that. It was like, you know, anyway. Yeah. Go on, go on. Yeah. Um, and there is uh, a, a picture today that's very poignant taken by um, uh, Frank Thorpe at NBC, and it's from Statuary Hall, and it's uh, Zachary Taylor's bust, and it has blood smeared on it from mm -hmm. yesterday. And there's just so much symbolism in what happened yesterday and the side-by-side -side of the inauguration four years ago of Donald Trump and the bunting. And then four years later, the smoke clearing and the Trump flags instead of union. And I'll just, I'll finish with this and turn it over to you. Uh, Chuck Grassley's chief of staff tweeted as he left the building at, you know, three or 4 AM last night. And he said, leaving the Capitol tonight, the star spangled banner yet waves. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful and appropriate to say, but I, I will say to me, and I'm glad you brought up the flags, we're on the same wavelength, the single most infuriating and telling moment to me as I was watching this unfold, and I, and I did not see, as you're watching it unfold, you did not see some of the, the, the violence that was occurring inside the walls, which was you know, exponentially worse than what somebody did with the flag. But as a symbolic moment, what was so infuriating was when we saw some of the protesters trying to remove the American flag and replace it with the Trump flag. And I thought, this is exactly, this is exactly symbolic of how toxic this movement is. Because what it does is it rests on two assertions. One is that America is over, that Joe Biden will destroy America, that the squad will destroy America, that America is teetering on the brink of destruction. That's assertion number one. And then assertion number two is only Donald Trump can save us, that it is only under the banner of Donald Trump that we can restore and protect our republic. And if you think I'm exaggerating about that, if you think I'm exaggerating about that, I'd urge you to go and listen, and maybe you can put in the show notes my debate that I had with Eric Metaxas. 
who has been for years a mainstream Christian voice, a guy who headlined the National Prayer Breakfast for crying out loud during the Obama administration, who expressed exactly those sentiments. He said in the debate, I was debating at John Brown University in Northwest Arkansas, Christian school. He said, if Joe Biden, now this is talking about Joe Biden, if Joe Biden wins, we cannot have a debate like this ever again. What? <laughs> what? Are you kidding Being me? What are, is, is, the, is the federal government going to sh- storm in and shut down debates at Christian universities? And then he said, Donald Trump is a great man. And this is where, the, and I, I'll end with this. There was a lot of Christian nationalism out there. A lot of Christian nationalism. I saw people erecting a giant crucifix, people running around with signs that said Jesus saves. One of the protesters who breached into the Senate chamber was walking around waving the Christian flag, which is this sort of Christian nationalist symbol uh, that flies in many places, especially across the South. Um, There was a lot of Christian nationalism. And I'm going to say this, we warned you. (laughs) We warned you that this was dangerous fanaticism and it was leading nowhere good. And I was a pessimist and I didn't foresee this. I didn't foresee it getting this bad. So David raises a question I want to ask everybody, including Sarah, um, because she gets to hide in the moderator role. Um, (laughs) uh, How much I told you so's are appropriate in all of this? Um, because I mean, I have to admit the one upbeat feeling I've had in the last 48 hours is that Trump is determined to leave office in a way that completely vindicates people like, well, me and David and, you know, and Steve (laughs) and, you know, and just like it, it in the, in the, you know, I've been saying for four years, character is destiny. This will end in tears. He's a bad person, unfit for the job. And we're hardly alone, right? Um, But as as a political matter, forget good manners, but as a political manner matter, if if it just becomes a sea of I told you so's from the remnant of people who stood athwart all this, does that make it harder to fix things? Because people hate being told I told you so, and they will redouble their commitments um, if they feel like they're going to be called a fool for for admitting they were wrong. And there are very few people like Andy McCarthy who really have the the mensch like, you know, uh, decency to say, hey, I, I called this one wrong. Um, so w- what is the right road to take on all of this? Because I, I got to tell you, there's some I told you so's I would love to hurl about. I, I am still in a place of deep sadness. When I talked to friends yesterday, um, I talked to one federal prosecutor who works here in DC and she was crying. Um, you know, there's a family whose daughter was shot yesterday in the Capitol. There's, um, and I, Jonah, to be clear, I understand you're making a political, I told you so point. Right. I, I stipulated not, that not, manners are a yeah, different yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, and and so I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be holier than thou on this, but um, yeah, I feel like this is so much 
bigger and deeper than that. Saying that character is destiny is true, but to say that we would be, that other countries would be watching this and wondering, wondering if we were going to retake our capital, wondering if the United States was going to continue. We're far past what I think was an accurate prediction of how bad things could get. Yesterday was, um, you know, there's a lot of norms that have been broken over the last four years, many of which there was a lot of hand wringing and oh my's over that I thought were pretty silly. You know, they were, they were norms. They shouldn't have been broken maybe, but to say that this was somehow, you know, turning the tide of America, uh, yesterday was really different. It was just different. It will be in every history book. Um, I was at the Capitol in June of 2004 when the Kentucky governor's plane breached the no-fly zone during Reagan's funeral. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, we didn't know it was the Kentucky governor at the time. Instead, they just came over the loudspeakers and said, um, evacuate the, pl- the building, plane incoming, plane incoming, run. And I was with the congressman's seven-year-old daughter at the time, and we had to get downstairs, and I just grabbed her and we ran. And it was... Um, it was terrifying. It was so soon after 9-11, after the anthrax and after everything else. And it's, you know, it's been 20 years since 9-11. But as you're watching that yesterday, I, I felt deeply that sense of those people in the building sheltering in place, not knowing how that would turn out. You know, one congresswoman saying that she was hearing gunshots outside of her office this to me was far beyond the political consequences of what will happen over the next two weeks or even the next four years. We are having a fundamental reckoning over the direction of this country because there are millions of people who do not want to continue in union. And that's not an I told you so. It's far worse. Yeah, I I, I think... Um... Those are very good points, uh, and, and it's important. Um, but I think Jonah raises a, a valid question, and it, to me, it's <clears throat> it's not about tut tutting, sort of throwing things back in the face who of people who um, you know who, who every time we raised a question or wrote something critical of Donald Trump would would uh, would pounce. Um, and I don't think that's how Jonah's thinking of it. You can correct me if I'm wrong. It's it's less about a tit for tat, and to me, it's more about accountability. Um, you yeah, had, no, just I want to be clear about this. I was. It's a shameful thing that I had a sense. Of, I was trying to be clear about this. It's 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 a somewhat shameful thing to have feelings of Schadenfreude when you see your enemies or your opponents or whatever you want to call them being exposed as wrong and you being exposed as right. That's not the important issue. And that's the thing I was trying to say. I was trying to keep in check, but I think it highlights, as, as Steve was about to explain, you know, there's a political question here about, like, in the aftermath of the Civil War, you know, is the is it reconciliation through forgiveness or is it, you know, truth and record, you know, uh, truth commissioning? I mean, like, uh, and do you or who who should be a pariah and who shouldn't be a pariah? Um, and I think these are like important questions um, that we're going to need to sort of figure out. Yeah. And look, I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of people, I mean, Andy McCarthy certainly is the, is the best example, as Jonah mentioned earlier. We've seen other people who have said, boy, 
this this is different. This feels different to me. Now, I personally don't think this is a different Donald Trump. I don't buy that argument that this is suddenly somehow a different person than we saw a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. I mean, the things he was doing as a candidate, I think, told us how he would act in situations like this. What's changed is the environment around him and the destructiveness of his acts. But I do think that um, for for people who have come to that recognition late, I, I don't I don't want to be in the business of of questioning why they did or what they're saying now. The fact that they're saying these things now is is welcome, and I think will be an important first step, sort of getting beyond a lot of this. The the thing that I've wrestled with, and I'll, I'll be sort of candid, I've wrestled with it in terms of my own writing, in terms of the kind of pieces that we should do. At the dispatch, you know, we don't, one of the things we did when we launched was we didn't want to be sort of bogged down by the internecine conservative media wars and all of the, the kind of crap that obsesses people in Washington, um, but is really boring for most people outside of Washington, honestly. That said, you know, you have center-right media outlets um, who actively encouraged all of the stuff that that we saw culminate in violence yesterday, um, who have, you know, amplified the president's lies, you know, both in the past nine weeks about the election being stolen, including, you know, linking to and covering favorably people like Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood, who are just nutjob conspiracy theorists peddling dangerous lies. Um, you know, you, you have people who have been doing this for a long time and, uh, I do think it's important to call them out. I do think it's important that, that, you know, that, that they are made to, to answer for some but of the Steve, bullshit that they, that they tried to put over on can I ask a their different, readers a harder- and on the country. Can I ask a harder question? Because I think, sure, that's on the easier side. Uh, the harder question for me is, like, what about a Mick Mulvaney? Mick Mulvaney <laughs> resigned this morning. He's the former chief of staff to Donald Trump, who then Donald Trump appointed to a diplomatic position uh, in Ireland. And he resigned today. We've had um, some other resignations. We should also know, he, I- wrote, he wrote a, f- a famous op-ed for the Wall Street Journal assuring everybody that Donald Trump, if he loses, would leave Grace gracefully and graciously, <laughs> you know, so just, it's worth pointing out. So, right. So Mick Mulvaney has now resigned and said he can't stand by for this. Is that, you know, Steve, are you going to welcome him back into the fold or is that someone who led directly to the violence of yesterday? Where does that sort of, to for me, a much harder grayer area fall? Yeah, in? look, I think, I think he has difficult questions to, to, to answer. And I think he will, be asked those difficult questions. Um, I, I'm glad that he resigned. I think it says something that he resigned. I think it's a cue to people who, um, you know, may have taken the fact that Mick Mulvaney was willing to work for Donald Trump and endorse Donald Trump, serve as his chief of staff, that this is all too much. And if we're talking about getting beyond the kind of insanity that we've seen, I will take every single one of those. Um, because I think it's an important message to, to send to, to the people who've been taken in by Donald Trump. Yeah, but there's a problem there, which I think Sarah was being delicate about. 
Remember Stu Stevens during the Romney campaign? He had that famous line where he said, you run to the right during the primaries and then you can be an Etch-A-Sketch. You just shake it and everything's yeah. forgotten. It was a bad line. He got a lot of grief for it. It kind of stuck to Romney. I, I, I didn't mean to trigger any of Sarah's PTSD on this, but um, <laughs> there is something grating about the idea of people who were aiding and abetting in all sorts of norm-breaking badness at the 11th hour, 13 days till Trump is no longer president, all of a sudden saying, you know, this far and no farther and resigning on principle and trying to get hazanas for it. And, you know, it's, I, I've actually been, I've probably written this a half dozen times about how there will come a point. And I was, I was wrong up until like a week ago or 48 hours ago, um, that I was always waiting for the Harriet Mo Myers moment for this presidency, hmm. where there was this, you know, there's a reason why we have the phrase, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's because a straw by itself will not break a camel's back. It's the last little bit with all the other baggage already on there that causes the back to break. And like, I was waiting for a long time for Donald Trump to have his Harriet Myers moment where he say, this far and no farther, we're, we're, we're done with this. And the fact that it had to get to the point where, again, dudes in Viking helmets and face paint were ransacking the nation's capital at his request. And to have people doing this, um, you know, like Mick Mulvaney, you're right, better that he's doing than he's not. And he doesn't have the problem that Sarah was talking about, about people, you know, who have, you know, have to deal with transition things and whatnot, you know, at this last minute. But like, uh, it is not a get out of jail free card in terms of the stuff that he has contributed to until this moment. Can I use a, can I use like a religious analogy for a minute? Okay. So, you know, in church, often when a pastor finishes speaking, he gives an altar call. Okay. And the altar call asks people to come forward and repent of their sins. And so people do, they will come forward. Sometimes who've done awful things for a really long time. And what you don't do in that church is smack them on the head on the way down saying, you should have done this six years ago. Like, great, wonderful, thank you, this is fantastic. But then what you don't do is immediately after they pray uh, with the pastor, pray with you know church leaders, is get up and say, okay, here you go, now teach Sunday school. Or, <laughs> you know, here's, here's the pulpit, get in the pulpit. You don't do that because there has to be a process of discovering whether this person which we're thankful that they have said no to this evil thing, there has to be a process where you understand whether they're worthy of trust. And so I think right now you are in a process that we are in the phase of saying anyone who says no to this evil that occurred yesterday and to what is presently occurring in this movement, anyone who says no to this, even if you should have said no in 2015, even if it's January 7th, 2021, if you say no to it, welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Now, that does not mean that if, and it's a big if, the right side prevails in these internecine fights over the next few years, that we then say, uh, well, you know, now go lead us. That's that's not the same thing. But right now, I think the stage is you say, welcome. And and look, I I get it. Like, you know, I think one thing that an awful lot of people don't realize is it's not just that folks disagreed with us here uh, over the last five years. And we've had some 
high-minded battle of ideas about Trumpism, and we're now vindicated in this intellectual combat. What has occurred over the last five to six years has been in a direct attempt to completely assassinate the characters of basically everyone on this podcast because of our opposition to Trump. Heck, there are publications that have Jonah Goldberg and David French tags that they have written so <laughs> many articles directly attacking us, attempting to destroy, not just to beat us in an intellectual fight, but to destroy our reputations, to end our careers in some instances. And so, yeah, when you see what happens here and you, I, I, I put it this way, I was, I was talking to my family, I said, never has vindication felt so miserable because, yeah, this was a moment of vindication, but the vindication was while the Republic was under direct attack. That doesn't feel triumphant. That doesn't feel exultant. It feels tragic. It feels horrible. And that's where we are right now. And I totally get the temptation to turn around and sort of like give everyone on that other side the double bird and say, yeah, I was completely right. But this is a moment where it, that so transcends this. It, it is a moment where I think we have to open our arms wide and say, I don't care if you've been, if you had the MAGA hat on until four seconds ago. When you take off that hat, it's welcome. Yeah. And Sarah, just to, to go to your, I mean, if people haven't read your, your piece in the Washington Post, I would encourage them to, to look it up and try to, to find it, or we can put it in, in the show notes. I mean, you know, your piece raises a lot of these really difficult and thorny questions. And we've talked before on this podcast, we've all had private conversations with people who chose to go into the Trump administration and work in the Trump administration. Some of them did it for, you know, reasons of naked ambition and, and power lust. Um, others did it, I think, for more noble reasons because they thought they might be able to play a role in restraining the president or curbing his worst impulses or what have you. Some of the that latter group, I think, managed to do that more successfully than others, managed to to, to make those attempts and come out of it with having, without having had to sell their soul. Others did not. Others just sold their soul and, and sold their soul willingly, I think. But, you know, some of what we've seen over the past four years, particularly from these senior officials, uh, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to understand exactly what the motives uh, are. I mean, suppose for a second that, that Mick Mulvaney wrote his, his much um, lamented and, and mocked Wall Street Journal op-ed because he'd worked alongside Donald Trump for two years and he knows that Donald take, Trump takes his cues nowhere more than he does from the media and that a prominent piece instructing Donald Trump or suggesting that Donald Trump will do the right thing uh, is a far more effective way to communicate with the president than to sit across the table from him and wag, wag his finger. It's entirely possible that what Mick Mulvaney was trying to do was in, in some ways noble, was, was saying, I'm going to put myself out and take the risk that this is not going to happen. I mean, I think betting people, when I read that op-ed, I was not taking the Mick Mulvaney bet. I did not think the president would, would concede graciously and you know, go on to, to his next life. Um, I think it's entirely possible that what, what Mick Mulvaney was trying to do there was communicate to the president and the people around him uh, what the right thing was and doing so in, uh, in a way that the president would understand and perhaps uh, respond to. doesn't mean that, that 
you know, if that's what he was doing, that we shouldn't ask these hard questions about Mick Mulvaney and his decision to, to go into the administration. I think we should, and, and maybe we'll try to get him on a, a dispatch podcast to ask him those questions. Um, I suspect he'd probably join us. Uh, but, but I, I do think it's, it's worth, I think David's point was, was, uh, was a very good one. Uh, at, at this point, I think the most important thing is sort of, uh, you know, excising the, the, the poison and this gets us there or helps get us there. I want to give you each then a real life example. Uh, I've talked to senior, uh, Pentagon, uh, political appointee officials, uh, who have, to a person said that they believe that they have stopped the president from entering into wars during the last four years. And therefore, uh, they do not regret going in. They do think they stopped real, real tangible harm. With that as a backdrop, Robert O'Brien is the national security advisor, and there uh, have been reports that he is considering resigning would you suggest that Robert O'Brien resign, understanding that then there's 15 days of Donald Trump as president without Robert O'Brien as the national security advisor, Steve? Yeah, I think that is that is I mean, it's you're, you're right to push us on that particular because it's not a hypothetical. I guess my um, my instinct is that in that case, no, Robert O'Brien should say exactly where he is. Um, you know, we had the departure of a deputy national security advisor yesterday afternoon and Matt Pottinger is one of the most respected national security officials in the country. Um, I think widely admired by both Republicans and Democrats, um, an expert on, uh, a number of different subjects with a specialty in, in Asia. When he talks, people listen and listen carefully and he left, he had enough. He's been there. Uh, I think the entire administration, um, he's responsible for behind the scenes for quietly making a, a number of moves that, you know, never would get him public credit, but I think helped shape the administration's uh, approach to some of the most important national security issues. And he's gone. I, I, I uh, when I saw that he had left, I saw the reports late last night that, that he had resigned. Um, I had very mixed feelings exactly the way that you're laying them out because I thought, well, good for him. And this is an important signal. I mean, Matt Pottinger is not a well-known person, so it doesn't have the, the power of a signal of somebody like a Mick Mulvaney or, or, or a Jim Mattis when he resigned. Um, but I liked that people were saying everything I saw today m makes this too much. On the other hand, you know, I, I, I think that we're, I think that we as a country are in, in, real potential danger right now. I think people aren't paying careful enough attention to the, to the risks right now. I mean, we have two, two weeks with a man who is demonstrated. I mean, I think he's demonstrated over five years, but he's very clearly, I think indisputably demonstrated that he's not mentally stable right now. You're hearing this from his top advisors and people who have liked and admired him that he's not mentally stable. Yesterday, the the as as I mentioned earlier, um, when there was, it came time to call up the the DC National Guard, it was Mike Pence who handled those responsibilities. The, the U.S. military is working around the President of the United States, the Commander in Chief, right now. That's a scary situation, and you can bet that our enemies are paying attention to this. So. I would like Robert O'Brien to be in the room. I'm very skeptical that if, even if he's in the room, that he'll be able to influence the president. If some, you know, if, if there's a provocation from North Korea, for instance. Um, but, but maybe, but maybe he could. I mean, the, 
the the fact right now that this is kind of all we're we're hanging on to. We hope that these people might end up in the room should there be some urgent crisis is again, I think why the president has to be impeached and removed, or you have to have the cabinet officials um, invoke the 25th Amendment. Jonah or David, do y'all agree? Does Robert O'Brien need to stay? Um, I think, so I think he probably should stay. He should also probably give some telegraphs to the general public about why he is staying. He doesn't have to say, I'm here because, you know, Donald Trump has, has lost his gourd and is, you know, running around with a sword um, or anything like that. He can just simply say, uh, it can be fairly coded, sort of like the defense secretary's letter was. Where, well, you know, and it was acting, not- acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf put out a statement today that was not coded, but also not gratuitous. He said, I'm staying in place because we need to bring these people to justice. I condemn, you know, in the strongest terms what's happened and the president needs to come out and condemn it as well. The president uh, in the last hour then withdrew Chad Wolf's nomination to be confirmed <laughs> as Secretary of Homeland Security. But that, I think, is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Come out. So can I just jump in on a, on a factual matter there? There's been additional reporting from Caitlin Collins at CNN that that this withdrawal of the Wolf nomination had been previously scheduled, so it might not be a reflection of this um, of this news development. But, you know, certainly it raises those questions. The fact that we have to even worry about that well, makes so, the so point. This, this raises the point I wanted to make um, about the Pence circumvent, you know, uh, going around, doing an end run around the, the chain of command, around the commander in chief. Um, again, not to do it. I told you something. I've been writing for a long time about how when it sort of classic game theory, if one side starts breaking the rules, or as we like to say it and sort of, you know, puffy think tank talk, uh, violating democratic norms, um, it creates a whole new permission structure for the other participants in the game to violate democratic norms, not necessarily for bad reasons, but for, because if you see that one side's cheating or again, breaking the rules, you think the only way to punish them is to by breaking the rules too, or the only way to constrain them is by breaking the rules too. So like early in the Trump administration, you had people outrageously by normal standards leaking private conversations between Trump and a foreign leader. And the argument was that you would hear the rationalization for it was the people need to know this because this guy is violating norms. So they violated norms in response to let the people know. It's a bad place to be in when the vice president of the United States feels it necessary to usurp the prerogatives of the commander in chief in order to put down an insurrection in the nation's capital. And in a think tanky kind of like on paper kind of way, it's kind of outrageous that Pence did that. And you could come up with a thousand scenarios in sort of seminars and role playing things where the vice president who did that would be the villain, the one who usurped, you know, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff when it did an end run around the commander in chief. But in this case, it was the right thing to do. And it, it just calls to mind the whole, you know, the center does not hold problem where all of the players in the game, and I hate calling it a game or in the system, they no longer they no longer can do it the proper way because the guy at the center, the hamster at the center, you know, on the hamster wheel, the center of this giant Rube Goldberg machine of the federal government isn't playing by the rules. And it makes it impossible for the other players to play by the rules as well. And it's, 
it's a dangerous place to be. You know, our, our friend Eric Erickson uh, makes an important point about exactly this, uh, this discussion that we're having. And, and he sort of falls on the side of, of people staying in their positions until the end of the administration, uh, as, at least as long as, as Donald Trump is president. Some of what we're seeing now is Donald Trump because Donald Trump is alone. Um, it, it did have an effect that John Kelly was his chief of staff, that Jim Mattis was his secretary of defense. He was reined in by some of these people. They were able to talk him out of uh, acting on his many worst instincts. And while I don't think Donald Trump today is fundamentally a different person than Donald Trump was in July, uh, he exhibited the, the exact same kinds of behavior that we're seeing. It is definitely the case that as he's less and less constrained, he's free to act on his whims. And his whims are destructive and dangerous to the extent that you have people around him doing everything they can to rein him in. I think it's important for the for for potentially for the the national security of the country that they remain in place to do so. You know, it is a simple fact that the moment that Donald Trump became president of the United States, we were stripped of good, clear options of how to deal with him. Mm. I mean. We just never, I don't think we ever had a real path that said, this is the obvious right way to deal with the existence of this man as president of the United States. He didn't walk in the office having committed impeachable offenses, for example. Um, there was, so we've been confronted with just a series of bad options from day one here. Uh, and, and a lot of what we've had to do was try to muddle through in good faith. And so there's an incredibly strong argument, for example, to say, yeah, you serve in this administration and you try to prevent this man who's clothed with immense power, just immense power, even though he's hemmed in by the Constitution, to prevent him from using that immense power in a way that could destabilize the world, much less destabilize this country. There's a tremendous argument for that. There's also an argument that, as Sarah has laid out, that the very effort uh, to cabin Trump and wall him in has hidden the reality of Trump from the American people and with, with, you know, has restrained the system from imposing accountability on him because there's still this argument that's, that is advanced that in part because of the efforts of people are trying to restrain him, that elements of his administration have been good. And so there's just never been a really good option here. It's one of the reasons why when, when those moments have occurred of clarity that I've urged very strongly that decisive action be taken. For example, in impeachment, in impeachment, there was not a credible argument that what he did with American foreign policy was an appropriate use of presidential powers. It's one of those reasons where I thought, hey, there are between the bad and less bad options, by far the less bad option here is impeachment. And, you know, one of the things that's sad about that is I just keep looking about at 2020. Yeah, there would have been a lot of upheaval if Mike Pence had become president of the United States in January, February 2020. There had been a lot of upheaval. There had been a lot of anger. But does anyone think that he would have been less well-equipped to handle this pandemic? Does anyone think that? I mean, we're heading with the speed of a freight train towards 400,000 dead Americans. And we and it won't stop there. 400,000. 
That is staggering. And anyone who says that that's an inevitable death toll here, that's just wrong. There are many other countries that have handled this far better than this country. And then this upheaval, if Mike Pence had become president, he might have won if he'd handled pan- the pandemic well. And even if he hadn't handled the pandemic, I mean, even if he didn't win, we would not have had the Capitol taken over by insurrectionists. That wouldn't have happened. And we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you guys uh, for <laughs> joining. And Jonah, you we're managed not to getting speak started. in tongues. Don't worry, David. You and I get to do a whole nother hour on this on advisory opinions today. Well, we will dive into the 25th Amendment and uh, you know the rules surrounding impeachment, et cetera, about barring uh, folks from office. But in the meantime, Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you again next week. Bye.